located large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Members of the conservative media, a number of Republican congressional leaders, including Representatives Matt Gates, Mo Brooks, and Paul Gosar, along with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson, former President Trump, and members of his legal team, all tried to pin the January 6th siege of the U- on the U.S. Capitol building on Antifa. That's despite the fact that many of the rioters waved Confederate and Trump flags and wore Trump hats and that the FBI disputes the claim. So why does the right blame Antifa for things it obviously didn't do? Mark Bray, a historian of human rights, terrorism, and politics in modern Europe and a lecturer at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, joins us now. He's the author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which was published by Melville House. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Your book was published in 2017. What prompted you to write it then? Yeah, well, um, you know, although Antifa and militant anti-fascist politics had existed in the United States for a number of years and had existed in Europe and beyond for, for far longer than that, it wasn't really on the radar of many, many people in society, let alone many leftists. But that started to change with uh, the development of what came to be known as the alt-right um, with President Trump's campaign in 2015 for president, with his uh, victory in 2016, with his inauguration, there was a growing sense among many leftists and people who felt uh, a threat from the far right that this was the anti-fascism was a renewed problem. And so um, as a historian, as an activist, as a leftist myself, I thought it was important to piece together the history of anti-fascism, both, um, you know, 100 years ago, but in recent decades as well, in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, so that people who uh, needed to, to fight back in this context would have a point of reference to understand where the struggle came from, and the kinds of tactics and strategies used by other anti-fascists in other parts of the world. You say that anti-fascism has a 100-year history This specific strain of militant anti-fascism has existed in the United States for several decades, but uh, it largely came into prominence as a result of of clashes during the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesburg in 2017. Uh, Yeah, that's right. People forgot Um, about the whole European history? Well, I mean, I think that for many Americans, especially prior to recent years, anti-fascism was maybe uh, a reference to World War II or at best the Spanish Civil War. And I've even found that that for a number of Americans, there's a sense that people didn't really know that like Hitler or Mussolini were bad until it was too late, but that wasn't really true. There were leftists and Jews, um, trade unionists, fighting back against Mussolini and Hitler from the very beginning of their regimes and even before they got into power. And so in that sense, yes, uh, anti-fascism goes back as far as fascism. The, the story is less well-known even after World War II when it's assumed that with the defeat of the Axis powers, with the, the defeat of Hitler, um, that that's the end of fascism and the end of anti-fascism, therefore. But the far-right threat persisted in Europe and beyond, and of course in the U.S. with the KKK and other groups, it, it never even slowed down. And in response to that, new kinds of anti-fascist movements developed uh, in, in, in its more radical form, increasingly um, located in countercultures, in football stadiums in Europe or in punk venues. And 
and and that's the the genesis of this kind of specifically militant anti-fascist tradition in the U.S. with the groups like anti-racist action. But it came became a mainstream phenomenon, a mainstream point of conversation, as you mentioned, in response to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, uh, when a fascist killed anti-fascist Heather Heyer with his car. And then, you know, all of a sudden, everyone needs to know what is this, this Antifa phenomenon? As you point out, there's uh, been a long history of fascism in the United States. Father Coughlin had a large following during the 1930s. Hitler called Henry Ford a great man. But then after World War II, uh, the overarching view was that liberal democracy would be enough to combat fascist groups. So have fascist and white supremacist movements, uh, just did they just go underground? Or have they been growing in uh, over the past decade? Well, um, you know, the, the, there have been ebbs and flows in the explicit sort of overt manifestations of white supremacist politics in the U.S. over the past decades. But um, from, from experts that I spoke to in my book, there has been an increase in overt white supremacist and fascist organizing in the U.S. certainly um, over the past 10, 15 years with the development of the Minutemen uh, monitoring the border in response to the presidency of Barack Obama, the first black president, um, in response to what many fascists and white supremacists view as the kind of decay of traditional values with the development of um, LGBTQ movements and, and, and feminist movements. And so the culture wars, I think, are, are central in this. And then I think it took a, another leap forward with um, Donald Trump, who rose to power in part based on support from the far right and in turn uh, galvanized the far right. And so part of the story, especially over the last few years, and we see that coming to a head with the, the Capitol insurrection, is increasingly a blurring of the lines between what you might call the far right and, and the center right in the U.S. During the George Floyd protests in May and June 2020, the Trump administration blamed Antifa for orchestrating the mass protests but didn't analysis of federal arrests find no links to Antifa? That's right. Um, so how many false flags are involved in all of these things? Oh, quite a few. Quite a few. And, and this is nothing new in the history of fascist and far-right politics. Um, you know, uh, Nazis blaming Jews for their own extermination or denying the Holocaust. These are old kinds of false flag, uh, you know, um, misleading, uh, untruthful conversations. And part of that is because historically fascist and far-right politics has had no allegiance to, to rationality or truth as, as a, a value in the way that other ideologies might profess. But you're right, there, there hasn't been any evidence of any significant Antifa participation in the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. Um, that has been found by federal law enforcement, also by many journalists who looked into it. And there, there's a self-evident fact to that, which is that there are not nearly as many Antifa groups in the U.S. as the far right likes to imagine, and their memberships are small, and their political influence is not nearly enough to have been the the kind of um, the leader or the, or the main driving force of all these protests. And you know, instead, in, in this circumstance, it was pretty self-evident to me and many others that blaming the property destruction and conflict that erupted in some Black Lives Matter protests last year on Antifa was a way to avoid talking about the most significant and far-reaching 
rebellion the U.S. had seen in half a century and the underlying uh, racial justice grievances that drove it, right? Rather than having that difficult conversation, the far right said, nope, it is this shadowy small group um, or in their imagination, maybe a big group that, that no one really uh, knows much about. But, but of course, Antifa itself is not a unified organization. It's a kind of politics or activity that is put into practice by different groups that are autonomous. But uh, many leftists uh, argued that the, the destruction that occurred during the various protest marches, Black Lives Matter and the like, were actually done by uh, right wing right wingers who infiltrated the groups and uh, decided to create some kind of havoc. Is that true? Um, I, I I think that there there might have been like one or two isolated incidents that that where there was some evidence to suggest that, but those kinds of moments of burning police cars and burning police stations and smashing storefronts happened in just about every city, major city in the country. And so um, I think that that certainly the majority of it, um, if not almost all of it was done by people who were fed up with the police killing black people and, and were increasingly, um, pessimistic about the ability of the system to reform itself and change. And so you get these, you know, this is nothing new in the history of protest and resistance around the world. You get these moments of social upheaval where the forms of resistance, you know, uh, boil up outside of the normal modes of addressing grievances when people feel like they're not being listened to and, and when they don't feel like the, the quote unquote appropriate mechanisms of social transformation are actually doing anything. And so that's what we saw. And uh, it, it didn't come out of nowhere, of course. It grew out of years of organizing, especially since the development of Black Lives Matter. And, and so to blame it on Antifa, or even to blame it um, in any significant way on right-wing provocation is to miss the real anger and frustration that is, is um, prevalent in this country. Is there a crossover between Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street and Antifa? Sure, sure. There is. Um, how much? I'm not entirely sure, but I, I know people who were active with Occupy Wall Street, who are who are who have subsequently been active with Black Lives Matter groups and, and similar types of groups. I know people who have been part of Antifa groups who have have participated in both of those as well. You know, in, in left wing and radical circles, many people find a variety of causes uh, to be worth their time and, and jump around, right? Some people spend some time doing env- environmental justice work and then racial justice work and so forth. And so um, people that are part of Antifa groups or people who are part of Occupy Wall Street are also unionists, are also community activists. And so there, there is a kind of a variety of Venn diagrams in this kind of left-wing ecosphere, you might say, um, even though um, these kinds of different forms of activism have their own character to them as well. There were repeated calls by Trump and his attorney general, William Barr, to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. Uh, There are a couple of questions there. First of all, would it be legal? And can we call Antifa an organization? You mentioned Antifa groups, but uh, are they all part of one larger Antifa organization? You're right that 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 um, Trump and Barr and his administration called for Antifa to be declared a terrorist organization, most forcefully in the context of the protests in response to the police killing of, of George Floyd. But that wasn't the first time that Trump had made 
that kind of call. Um, and other um, Republican politicians had made similar calls in in recent years. Now, we no, talked about airplanes as, being filled with with Antifa radicals uh, when it turned out that wasn't. In fact, he had them going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as far as I know, it wouldn't be illegal to designate um, a group like an anti-fascist group to be a domestic terrorist organization based on U.S. law. But, but perhaps even more fundamentally, Antifa itself is not an organization. Now, right-wingers take that talking point and say, oh, you're, you, you're just saying that it's, um, you know, a boogeyman or a ghost and it doesn't really exist. No, Antifa groups exist. And sometimes the comparison I make is I compare it to, to feminism, for example. There are feminist groups, just as there are Antifa groups, but neither feminism nor Antifa is itself a group. Uh, there's a difference between an ideology or a politics or a practice of, uh, of, of what have you and the application of it in a group. You could compare it to bird watching, right? There are bird watching groups, but bird watching itself is not a group. And so in that way, especially given the strong anarchist and anti-authoritarian influence in many Antifa groups, they, they're, they're usually autonomous, although they collaborate. In the U.S., there is something called the Torch Network, which is a network of about a dozen Antifa groups that share resources and information. Uh, that's a loose network, and most Antifa groups in North America don't belong to it. So, um, you know, it's 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 another example that you can see with um, with Occupy Wall Street, with any example of decentralized politics from below. That the right wing response is to de deny that it's decentralized, deny that it's horizontal to try and find one figurehead leader and make the allegation that that figurehead leader is secretly financed by George Soros or whatever kind of boogeyman they want to pin things on. And it's really just um, a refusal to acknowledge that bottom-up grassroots politics can exist. Well, it's kind of a projection. They're looking at uh, their right. own organizations and then uh, seeing Antifa as the uh, opposite, but the same. What are some of the other misconceptions about Antifa? Well, I mean, one of them is that Antifa groups only their only mode of of or mode of politics or activity is violence, right? So, so violence, violence and free speech, I suppose, are the two hot button issues when when we have this conversation around anti-fascism in the U.S. And so, there's an assumption based uh, in part on fact, right? based on looking at examples like property destruction carried out by anti-fascists in Berkeley to shut down a Milo Yiannopoulos event in 2017, or conflicts with Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer in the Pacific Northwest or what have you, looking at these conflicts and making the argument that you see what Antifa groups do is exclusively violence. Um, in fact, it's, it's kind of a tip of, the, tip of the iceberg, right? A lot of what Antifa groups spend their time doing is monitoring and researching different far-right groups, determining who their own leaders are and their members are, often tracking them across multiple social media platforms, and then pressuring venues, whether hotels or VFWs, to not allow them to hold events, and, and basically leveraging public opinion, often through doxing by making the private information of these Nazi leaders public, making it so that it's basically socially and politically untenable 
for the far right to try and normalize itself in our communities. When you see physical confrontation, that is often a kind of last resort when these other methods of shutting down the far right don't work. And when they do work, they're not particularly newsworthy, right? There, there were examples for many years before this became a public uh, topic of anti-fascist groups outing a local Klansman and therefore the Klansman, you know, gets fired from his job and, and is unable to live a comfortable life integrated into society as a Klansman, but that didn't always get the headlines. Um, nevertheless, um, anti-fascists do make a historically grounded argument that self-defense, collective self-defense needs to be part of the repertoire of resisting the far right based, of course, in, in the many examples of massive uh, genocide and violence unleashed by fascist, white supremacists, and far-right groups. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Mark Bray, a historian and a lecturer at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, the author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which was published a few years back by Melville House. Um, is it still in print? Oh, sure is. Yep. You can you can order it online or, I mean, you're going to your local bookstore if, if you can wear masks or, or what have you. <laughs> so can anyone become a member of Antifa or... Uh, is it is this something where you kind of self-identify rather than actually join a group? Well, it, it's it's a way of doing politics based on a few kind of basic principles, I would say. And and to just back up for one moment, Antifa is a term that's become uh, used to describe a specific historical tendency within the larger anti-fascist struggle that is often referred to as militant anti-fascism. And so militant anti-fascism can be distinguished from the broader anti-fascist tradition based on a few main things. One is it's, it's a kind of uh, radical left, frequently anti-capitalist tradition um, that critiques fascism and far-right politics, not only for being quote-unquote extreme, but for being a kind of manifestation of underlying um, social ills that were created by a, a capitalist society. So it's a kind of socialist tradition, broadly speaking. And the other thing is that it has a skepticism towards the ability of the state, the police, the courts to stop the far right. It, it points to historical examples to say that, you know, if you look at figures like Hitler or Mussolini, they did not take power by destroying liberal democratic regimes. They actually worked within the organs of the state to come to power. And so the argument goes that in times of crisis, liberal democracy will, and especially a capitalist liberal democracy, will turn to the far right as its kind of um, escape valve rather than allowing uh, the forces of social revolution to remake society. So basically, it's a politics of radical left resistance to fascism that does not have faith in the police or the state to do the job. It's a kind of generally a kind of anti-authoritarian politics below. So any group of people that adheres to those kinds of principles can form their own group to oppose the local far-right forces where they live, calling it Antifa, calling it anti-racist action, or calling it anything else. And they would be within this tradition. Just as with any kind of politics, if there's a group of feminists, if there's a group of, of socialists, a group of liberals, you could form a group and adhere to the principles of the ideology that you subscribe to. Um, that having been said, if you wanted to 
form a group that would be affiliated with the Torch Network, for example. I'm sure they have their own vetting process to make sure that any group is, is you know, that their values are consistent with these broader values and that they're doing the kind of work. But to, to answer your question as succinctly as possible, yes, anyone can be Antifa. Anyone can do whatever kinds of organizing uh, on a local level to make it hard to be a fascist or a Nazi. Um, anyone can do that kind of, kind of work. It's just a matter of self-identification. Sure. And, and there's plenty of people who do this kind of stuff that don't identify with that tradition. I mean, there's other traditions of politics that oppose Nazis and white supremacists. This is just one of them. Now, in Europe in the 1920s and 30s, wasn't the rise of fascism in Italy and Germany unacknowledged or not taken very seriously, um, leading the political parties of most countries to being caught flat-footed when Hitler and Mussolini started causing so much trouble? Uh, does that make the case for the necessity of a movement like Antifa? Uh, and is that what happened in Europe eventually? Well, it, it depends on which kinds of parties and which kinds of countries. So the, the context in which fascism and Nazism emerged in Europe was the context of the, the aftermath of World War I and the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. So the Great Depression. For, and then subsequently the Great Depression, right? So right after World War I, right after the Russian Revolution in the early 1920s, there is a fear among many European elites, many centrist political parties, many center-right political parties that the, the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution could spread across Europe and could spread across the world, right? And then, as you point out, subsequently, several years later, you have the, the Great Depression and um, you have this communist and radical left movement arguing that you see capitalism is inevitably going to fail. We need a revolution. And so in this context, you have... Um, centrist, center-right political parties that either um, view fascism as a lesser evil to communism or are increasingly seduced by the arguments for an authoritarian corporatist kind of state. Um, and so the, uh, certainly for the left, the threat of fascism was evident from the beginning, but it is important to remember that even for many left-wing political parties, uh, especially their leaderships, they didn't see fascism and Nazism as a kind of existential threat as much as they saw it as a slight variation on traditional right-wing politics. Um, you know, conflicts between left and right had been going on for at least, you know, a uh, hundred years pre previous, and they saw fascism as just the latest flavor of that. It was really after Hitler came to power in 1933, and then especially with the, the, the onset of the, the Spanish Civil War in 1936, that many leftists in Europe and beyond, uh, even more, started to realize that the struggle against fascism was the struggle against um, complete destruction for the left, you know, for Jews, for, for many people in society. So to go back to your initial question, sure, there were plenty of people who didn't see it as, as much of a threat as it proved to be, either for political reasons, either for strategic reasons, for historical reasons, that became less and less true as time went along. And then, of course, that that um, ended in, in, in World War Two, although, the, as we've been discussing, it didn't completely end. And these struggles continued in the post-war period as well, to varying degrees in different countries. When people volunteered to fight in Spain against Franco uh, and the, the fascist forces, were they uh, 
would they have used the word Antifa? Well, the, the, the specific term Antifa is of German origin, and 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 there's a there. I think its first use in Germany was. I think like the early 1930s. And, and in Germany, there was a group called Anti-Fascist Action um, created by the communists. Uh, so maybe Germans that went to Spain would have used that specific abbreviation for anti-fascist or anti-fascism, but it gained wider currency beyond Germany, really in, in the post-war period, specifically um, starting in the, starting maybe really in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, in Germany and beyond. And so in recent decades, it's been a term that that is very portable because many languages around the world start the term anti-fascist or anti-fascism with the same five letters. Um, so it's a way to sort of have a, have a language beyond those specific languages. In the U.S., though, the term Antifa wasn't even really used by anti-fascists all that much until about 2007, with the creation of Rose City Antifa in Portland, Oregon, which is the oldest currently existing Antifa group in the U.S. And they were influenced by this specifically European and, and especially German tradition of militant anti-fascism to use that term in their name. And subsequently, it's become more ubiquitous in the American left. Would we find uh, similar impulses going all the way back to Reconstruction? I think so. So... I guess the, the first part of this is... Although we wouldn't have called that, it Antifa, obviously. We, oh, Was, was there not. a name for, for uh, the, uh, the people who, who were fighting um, the, the Klan and other far-right-wing groups? Well, there, there were all sorts of, um, you know, uh, essentially largely black radicals, um, you, you know, uh, IDB Wells and, and, and other figures who were organizing against the Klan, organizing for self-defense in, in, during Reconstruction. And the historian Robert Paxton made the intriguing argument that in a functional sense, we can think of the KKK as the first kind of proto-fascist organization in history anywhere. And so in that sense, you could think of resistance to the Klan during that era as a kind of proto-anti-fascism. But, you know, that, that points to the larger issue that, to some extent, we can think of fascism as just a variation of longer histories of imperialism and white supremacy. And then, of course, the conversation goes back, you know, the first slave ships to the, the genocide of the indigenous population of the Americas and so forth. So it's, you know, once you start digging into this conversation, there, there's a lot of directions it can go. And there's been a wide variety of far-right militias, Klan groups, Nazi groups operating in the United States for decades and beyond, but they weren't considered a threat by mainstream society because they didn't have access to the halls of power the way they began to have when Donald Trump was elected and, and brought in people like Stephen Miller, uh, Steve Bannon, and Sebastian Gorka. Is it, would, you, yeah. would you agree to that? Yeah, generally speaking, I would. I mean, certainly there was, you know, the example of Timothy McVeigh blowing up the the, the, mm. the state building in, in Oklahoma City in what was it, 1991 or well, it was, 92? Yeah, in, I don't late, in the 90s, anyway. Yeah, um, you know, so there there were there were isolated examples, but I think that most Americans viewed those things as, um, you know, one-off kind of almost random occurrences, and the the specter of right-wing militias was something that many Americans. I think thought of as, you know, just sort of a bunch of um, strange people off in the woods doing whatever they're doing. Um, Wanting to own and guns. In that, yeah. And, and in that sense, um, 
I think a lot of Americans view the question of, of fascist or far-right politics exclusively from a regime level, right? They, they think that if it's not in power in government, then it doesn't matter. But there have been you know, countless cases over the past few decades of these kinds of groups unleashing violence on local immigrants or uh, queer and trans people or, or what have you. Now, the, the, the equation gets much more dangerous when, as you say, they have influence in the halls of power, when people like Stephen Miller are playing key roles in influencing policy around immigration, around the Muslim ban and other things. And, and certainly the, the capital insurrection failed, but that kind of moment is suggestive of the dangerous confluence of these factors when someone like Trump gets into power. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. There aren't too many uh, songs, Antifa songs in English, but uh, there are a number in German, and that we just played a little segment from one of them. My guest is Mark Bray, author of Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook published by Melville House in 2017. Uh, do you think we need a, a song? Uh, sure. I think we need plenty of songs. Um, successful political movements throughout the world uh, for, for, for many years have relied on, on song and culture to, to thrive. And, that, and anti-fascism has been no exception. Certainly this explicitly Antifa tradition has more of a history in Europe and therefore it has more of a kind of cultural association. But you know, there, there have been uh, American punk and, and alternative bands that have made songs about anti-fascism in the past, and I'm sure there are plenty that are doing it now. Were you at the Unite the Right, Unite the right rally in Charlottesville? I wasn't. Um, I considered going down. I was living in New Hampshire at the time, but um, for various reasons, I wasn't able to go, but I was following it closely. Do you feel that the the day ended up as a victory for anti-fascists in this country, or or was it uh, something that galvanized white nationalists? Um, I think overall, um, the, the takeaways were more beneficial for the anti-fascist movement than the far-right movement. So the, if you look at the name of the event, it was called Unite the Right. And the, the name says it all, right? These various different right-wing groups wanted to create... Um, uh, a popular public far-right street movement that would bring together all these different Nazi and Proud Boy and white supremacists and, and neo-Confederate groups under one banner, uh, under the kind of benevolent eye of Donald Trump. And what happened in response was all sorts of different anti-fascist and Black Lives Matter and student and environmental and anti-racist organizations showed up, organized a joint counter-protest, and actually shut down the permitted event before it even began. And um, although there were a number of conflicts that, that emerged, generally um, in the aftermath over the next year to the ability of the far right to, to follow through on its goal of creating a unified public movement was squelched 
We can see that, for example, a year later, when some of the same organizers tried to, to organize what they called the Unite the Right to rally, and they were unable to get a permit to hold it in Charlottesville. They tried to hold it in Washington, D.C., and the turnout was dramatically lower, in part because some Nazi and right-wing leaders told their followers not to show up for fear of being doxxed. Because as some listeners may remember, after Charlottesville in 2017, some of the khaki-wearing, um, tiki-torch-wielding Nazis were identified online and came home to be disowned by their families or fired from their jobs or kicked out of their universities. And so if we understand the ultimate goal of the Unite the Right rally and really of, of far-right politics in general as being the normalization of their perspectives, um, the embrace of their, of their role in communities um, as the imagined defenders of common sense and traditional values, then we can see the opposite happen, that actually the social cost of being uh, a public fascist became significantly higher. People found it untenable to be part of this kind of politics. And in much of the country, you don't see significant far-right street mobilizations over the next year or two, the exception probably being the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so I think in that sense, um, sympathy for anti-fascism increased sympathy for the far right decreased, and the political capital of the term alt-right, which I think was on the ascent up, up until that point, um, evidenced in you know, shows on CNN where they would take a survey of political perspectives across the spectrum, and they would sometimes include a, a quote-unquote alt-right voice. I think that when you, when you uh, look at the period after Charlottesville, the, the, all, the, the, the political utility of alt-right, which originally was a term intended to rebrand fascist politics coined by Richard Spencer, that that utility of that term goes out the window. So I think overall it was it was a, a plus for anti-fascist resistance, although, um, you know, the, the tragic murder of Heather Heyer um, is something commemorated by anti-fascists to this day and will be for, for years to come. Uh, it didn't accomplish the goal that its organizers had set out for it. One of uh, Trump's uh, impeachment lawyers, Michael Vanderveen, claimed that one of the first people arrested was a leader of Antifa. Is that true? That one of the people, first people arrested in 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 the Capitol? Yeah. Uh, not to my knowledge. No, I don't. I don't know of anyone who participated in the Capitol protest being part of an Antifa group or or even being a leftist. How much does the, the wish to return to an idealized past, Trump's Make America Great Again rally and cry, how much of it is an expression of fascism, do you think? Well, it certainly dovetails completely with fascism. So to talk a little bit about what fascism is and what it has meant, um, I think it's helpful to, to look at the root of the word, right? The term fascism in Italian comes from the fascis, which is a Roman symbol. And so after World War I, Hitler, uh, Mussolini and his followers wanted to create a kind of movement to return Italy to its past glory, to essentially make Italy great again. And, but the kind of paradox of it was they wanted to use modern modes of mass political action to re return Italy and return Europe to an era before mass politics had destroyed traditional gender norms, traditional um, hierarchies. So you can see a similar thing going on um, in, in sometimes in, in paradoxical ways with, with Trump and Trumpism, that many uh, Trump supporters 
view past eras of uh, American history nostalgically. I don't remember which news outlet it was, but I remember reading a study where they interviewed Trump supporters and they asked them, I think this was 2016 or 2017, when was America last great? And responses varied, but the, the common thread was that most respondents said that America was last great during an era when they were teenagers. <laughs> and so, so the, the, the return to this idealized past before feminism or queer and trans politics or Black Lives Matter uh, destroyed traditional hierarchies has been part of, of fascist and far-right politics for more than a century. And Trumpism, under the, the kind of rubric of the GOP, has been uh, a relatively main, mainstream way for that to be expressed. And um, I think that we're going to see different iterations of it over the coming decades. Unfortunately, I don't think it's disappeared. Uh, one thing that came to light in the early days of the investigation of the riot at the Capitol is that a number of insurgents were either members uh, of the police force and or had military backgrounds. Uh, how prevalent are members of fascist groups within our military, National Guard, police forces across the country? More recently, a number of the police who were supposedly protecting the Capitol have uh, come under fire. Uh, they were taking selfies, and one of them was even wearing a MAGA cap. Right. Um, and so many commentators have point, pointed out the discrepancy between security responses to the Trump protests on January 6th versus Black Lives Matter protests or other kinds of leftist protests where people who are just walking down the street get brutalized. Um, now, that's that's nothing new. Um, that's how the state has responded, particularly to black freedom struggles um, since the beginning. Uh, now, but specifically about identification, I don't really know the numbers myself, although I've come across studies that show there certainly is a disproportionate um, membership and an even broader sympathy among law enforcement and the military to the far right in the U.S. And, and that's been the same way in a number of other countries. And there's a self-evident aspect to it that um, fascist and far right calls for order, for using force to settle all of society's problems, uh, for respecting hierarchy, that these kinds of calls would um, resonate with people whose job it is to use violence and there have also been documented cases, cases documented by the FBI of um, Nazi and far right groups getting jobs in local law enforcement to be able to, to brutalize people of color and immigrants, quote unquote, legally. Um, now, this, of course, gets into the larger question of from an anti-fascist perspective, what is the relationship between the far right and the state? And to what extent can the state be relied upon to, to stop the far right? Uh, after World War II in Europe, this question divided much of the European left. On the one hand, you had many socialist parties that believed that the way you stop the growth of the far right is you sim simply make it illegal to form another Nazi or fascist party. The militant anti-fascist tradition rejected this argument and called for a kind of bottom-up community, uh, direct action-focused response against the far right. And I think that looking at what happened in the Capitol uh, on January 6th, when, as you mentioned, some police officers took selfies, others uh, escorted these uh, Trump supporters, these, these uh, far-right um, demonstrators, insurgents down the halls of power, shows that especially if we face a time of even more acute crisis over the coming years, that state forces may 
be more sympathetic to far-right solutions to solving social problems than those put forth by social justice movements and that you can get these kinds of outcomes. And we've seen that in the different ways that members of the white national movement have been treated by police at rallies as opposed to demonstrators for Black Lives Matter or uh, related uh, activities. Yeah, yeah, and even... even um... Kyle Rittenhouse, the the far right gunman who killed two two Black Lives Matter protesters in Wisconsin, that being um, you know casually escorted into police custody, then being allowed out on bail um, and fraternizing with Proud Boys and others, while um, you know nonviolent Black Lives Matter demonstrations get get major jail time and get brutalized. The, the discrepancy is is evident for anyone who really wants to see it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Mark Bray. We're talking about Antifa. He actually wrote a book called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which was published by Melville House. Uh, the, um, th- there was uh, last August, members of, the, of a U.S. Marshals Task Force shot and killed a man whose last name I find it very hard to pronounce, Michael Forrest Rhino. Mm-hmm. He described himself as a supporter of Antifa. Uh, is there a distinction between considering oneself a supporter as opposed to being seeing oneself as an activist? Well, I, you're right. He, he, he described himself as an anti-fascist, as a supporter of Antifa politics, although he clarified he wasn't part of a specific organized group. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of people who, who describe themselves as, as anti-fascist or Antifa. And, you know, that's fine. But when I when I talk about this subject, I try to be clear about distinguishing between people who support the values and support the politics uh, and the principles and those who are part of organized groups, because being part of an organized group entails a, a much more significant commitment in terms of time and risk and so forth. So I just try to make that distinction. But the term is open for people to use if they adhere to the principles. Sure. He was a suspect in the killing of a far right Trump supporter in Portland. Uh, right. And, and I think that there's a video of him uh, confessing to having shot. Um, I think it was a member of Patriot Prayer. He made the argument that this person was about to attack a friend of his with a knife. He claimed he shot him. But the, uh, the investigation basically ended because um, seemingly at the orders of President Trump, um, uh, federal uh, law enforcement um, gunned him down before he could even be in- interrogated or put on trial. So they didn't make a serious attempt to arrest him? There were, I think, a half dozen witnesses who saw him get out of his truck, I think it was, and then um, the FBI, I think it was, opening fire uh, before making an effort to apprehend him, which, again, is in sharp contrast to someone like Kyle Rittenhouse, for example. What's the no-platform approach to fascism? So the term no-platform for fascism originated, I believe, in the UK um, in the 60s or 70s. And it was an argument that, so this is an era when leftists in Europe and beyond are trying to answer the question of how do we make sure that we don't have a sequel to the Third Reich anywhere. And so the argument is that rather than waiting for fascist or far-right groups to gain public prominence, to gain representation in parliament, 
to become significant social forces, rather than waiting for that to happen in order to resist them, it's more effective um, and easier to shut down these kinds of initiatives when they're small, when they're in their infancy. And so the, the, the slogan, no platform for fascism, is an argument that you don't let fascist or far-right groups have any presence in the streets, in public discourse, in society. And, you know, they, look, they would look back on examples, for example, that when Mussolini started his fascist movement in 1919, he started with 100 men, and within a few years, they had 100,000. That Hitler, when he attended his first meeting of the German Workers' Party before the name changed to the Nazi Party, at that time, the, the party had 54 members. Now, at the time, there was no reason for anyone to view these groups as being anything more than fringe. But the argument started to develop in the UK in the 60s and 70s. What if we don't make that mistake again? What if we view every little fascist or, or neo-Confederate group of 50 or 70 or even two dozen people as potentially being that nucleus? What if we take that seriously in order to prevent it from growing um, even though most of those groups will never reach that kind of um, threat. And so that's yeah. the perspective, basically. It's a rejection of the liberal notion of the free market of ideas, which posits that if you allow all ideas and political tendencies to manifest themselves, then inevitably the justice of those ideas and those politics that is most worthy will rise to the top and those that are least worthy will fall to the bottom. Um, Anti-fascists point to the history of the 20th century and beyond in order to argue that that hasn't always happened and, and that the historical horrors of fascism and white supremacy are so manifest that they do not deserve to be given that consideration. And so that's the idea with no platform for fascism. And it's something that Antifa groups and, and many other groups uh, put into practice these days in, in trying to stop the normalization of fascist far right and white supremacist politics. Now, Mussolini and Hitler used radio as a, a way of spreading their ideas. Um, today, we have the social media, and we have, um, we have people who are complaining about cutting down on, on the social media, uh, censoring, in a sense, uh, ideas that are, un that are deemed unacceptable. Uh, there are um, a, a number of people. At, uh, even at, at our radio station, we're very upset about that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult and a controversial issue because obviously there are many different factors and forces in play in terms of determining what is or is it not acceptable. Um, but there's also the threat that if it becomes okay again to be an explicit Nazi or white supremacist, that this could lead to significant violence against many marginalized people. Um, ultimately, I think that the, the, the kind of fantasy that we've ever had fully free speech is ignoring the very real limitations that society has put on, you know, copyright infringement, libel, pornography, the, the list goes on and on. As a society, we have always made valuations around what kinds of expression is appropriate under which circumstances and, and which interests are to be protected in that conversation. It's just that, you know, concern about the well-being of um, people of color or queer and trans people or immigrants has never been at the top of that calculus. The, the anti-fascist and the anti-racist call to deplatform um, 
Nazis and white supremacists from Twitter or Facebook or what have you is simply a kind of pushback from a different direction, even though it's not usually put in the same conversation as those other, other considerations. I think ultimately what we're talking about is the push and pull that has always existed and will probably always exist of society adjudicating what its values are, where the, the boundaries are, and how to, to determine who, is, who has an opportunity to express what under what circumstances and which kinds of values are prioritized. It's not easy, it's conflictual, it's messy, and, and it's not something that's ever gotten right all the time. But to just sort of turn a blind eye to the development of explicitly genocidal politics um, is, I think, not an option. Well, as you pointed out, there are many ways to fighting fascism, not all of them effective. What do you think are the most effective approaches or have been? Well, I think it's all contextual. It, it all depends on, on what the, the political opponent is, uh, what society's view of them is. So in chapter three of, of my book, Antifa, I interviewed European anti-fascists in countries where far-right parties have gotten into parliament or are in some cases one of the main party parties in society. And they've said, you know, you can't treat a party that has representatives in parliament the same way you would treat a small neo-Nazi skinhead group. Right. You need to, to, to take into account public opinion and how to, in, in those cases, create a kind of mass anti-fascist movement. Um, now, in, in the context of the U.S., we, we have something that is reminiscent to that. Right. Trumpism as a phenomenon, which is increasingly influential within the, the, the GOP, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and other kinds of figures mm -hmm. who seem poised to try and continue that forward. Um, as I mentioned earlier, threatened to blur the lines between the far right and the right. And so while certainly Antifa actions around doxing far-right figures, pointing out explicit connections between Proud Boys and, and figures like Roger Stone or what have you are vitally important, we also need uh, a popular anti-fascist and anti-racist movement that will not accept any kind of return to Trumpism or any effort to rebrand it moving forward. And, and what that would look like has to be multifaceted. And there's really, I think, a myriad of ways that everybody can in their daily life, in their communities, push back against efforts to make racism great again, make misogyny great again. And if you don't like what Antifa groups do or how they go about doing it, then, then pursue the avenue that you think is most useful to try and make an impact because um, this is something that affects um, all of us. I've been uh, upset by uh, reading the polls that indicate that uh, there are a fair number of Americans who think authoritarian approaches are perfectly fine, uh, left and right, but mostly right. Um, so is this just something that is human nature? We like a strong I, leader? I, I mean, I, I, think, I think that people are, are fairly politically um, malleable. By, by that, I mean... People tend to develop their politics in their context based on what their friends and family and societies and churches and, and institutions promote to them. And so, you know, prior to um, uh, the 18th century or, or what have you, the notion of representative government for most people around the world would have sounded ludicrous. Today, it sounds perfectly plausible to most to many people around the world. I don't know about most. Um, so they're they're. History is full of these major transformations and how people view what society should look like, 
what their role in society should be, uh, what participation means. And so I think that while we could definitely see a shift in a more authoritarian direction where people take a step away from the participatory impulses of, of the modern democratic experiment towards a kind of fascist or authoritarian future, we could also see a step towards really doubling down on the promise of political participation to go beyond the limits of, of representative democracy and make a more fully participatory uh, society as well. So in short, but we got to leave it there, unfortunately, Mark. Yeah. But thank you it's so much. Mark, <laughs> Mark Bray is a historian, uh, a lecturer at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which was published by uh, Melville House. And uh, I thank him so much for being on our show. Uh, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast in iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Also, if you'd like to comment on a show, if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just a moment to ask you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to uh, make a contribution now at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to uh, going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to, to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is funded 100% by listener donations and if you tune in regularly to the show or even just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews why not step up right now again Online, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. Whatever level you're comfortable with, uh, the important thing is that you do it right now to help keep this wonderful experiment and completely listener-sponsored radio alive and well on the New York radio dial because we rely on the generosity of listeners like you. So if you haven't already, make that call, 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org right now and please make that pledge in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and uh, and to everyone who has stepped up to support the station in the name of the show thank you very much and we hope you'll join us again on Monday when I'll be speaking with Dr. Jess Ting a plastic surgeon at New York's Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery and Tanya Cipriano whose documentary Born to Be details the groundworking uh, groundbreaking work that Dr. Ting is doing have a great weekend <laughs>